everyone. My name is Arti, and this is the Mahabharata. The Pandava Pilgrims and Rishi Agastya, also available online at www.themahabharatapodcast.com or facebook.com forward slash themahabharatapodcast. In our last episode, we concluded the story of Nal and Damyanti. They were separated for three years and it took us three months to tell the story. Yikes! The point of the story is to illustrate to Yudhishthira that he's far from alone in his suffering. Any man of misery one experiences, there's always someone who's had it worse. And you can bet the Mahabharata's got a tale for that, all but catalogued and cross-referenced under Library of Congress rubrics. In this case, Rishi Big Horse's keyword search under King and Gambling Debacle turns up the story of Nell. Nell and the Myanti also has a dreamy Disney quality about it. Though I take your point, might be awkward explaining Nell gambling the Myanti to the Disney boy. Today we're back with the Pandavas. Arjuna still in the heavens, perfecting his training in the performing arts, while the Pandavas left behind mope. It's just no fun without Arjuna. Draupadi sighs. There's no joy in anything, you know? I look around and all the earth seems empty. When's he coming back? Her husbands agree. As an aside, I was recently startled by Wood's apparent bias against polyandry. If you type in, his wives agree, Wood is tranquil about it. But if you type in, her husbands agree, in the plural, its grammar alarms start to shriek. It urgently nudges you to correct. Eventually, little men in white coats come and escort you out of the building. Okay, back to our text. Her husbands agree. It's like the sun's disappeared and we're mired in fog, adds Pima gloomily. Maybe we should move, proposes Nakula. Everything here reminds us of Arjuna. Let's get out of the Kamyaka forest, go somewhere new, distract ourselves. They're discussing the options when spookily on cue, Rishi Narada appears stage left. You remember Rishi Narada? One man, lonely planet guide, cosmic time traveler, galactic gossip, interplanetary busybody? They latch onto him with eagerness, anything to break the monotony. What do you think? Are there benefits to travelling in pilgrimage? Rishi Narada's always in his element, dispensing advice. Funny you should ask. You know your grandfather Bhishma once wondered the same thing? He was just a young lad, still studying for his A-levels. Tell me about the sacred places, he said. If I travel around them clockwise, will that help me with my exams? Did it ever. Let me tell you what he learned. They have dinner and he warms to his subject. Obviously, sacrifices are the best. But let's face it, sacrifices aren't easy to do. You need money, logistics, expert knowledge. The poor for sure can't afford them. 
So think of pilgrimage as the poor man's sacrifice. It provides the same rewards, better even, is a load of fun, and no goats need to die, right? Just look around you. This whole earth is sacred. What follows next is a catalogue of some 330 pilgrimage sites, along with the benefits they confer. Think a Contiki travel brochure numbering in hundreds of pages, charting the churches and shrines of old Europe, each with its own lore of stories. Visiting the St. Francis Chapel in Assisi brings the reward of a hundred cows, the sanctuary of Lourdes in France, a thousand, and trekking the Camino de Santiago de Compostela, a hundred thousand. At one site, you can atone the sad sin of abortion. At another, all classes can become Brahmins. Here's the site where Vyasa attempted suicide at the loss of his son. And here was a fabulous miracle. A man cuts his thumb and finds vegetable juice spurts out. Fantastic, right? Narada spices up his travelogue with tantalizing snippets of stories, filling the Pandavas' minds with wanderlust. So for near half of book three, the Pandavas will travel, with Indra's hand-picked Rishi as a tour guide. They'll hear a great many tales, some famous, some so obscure you'll be cursing what do these have to do with the Pandava story? Quite a lot, in fact, and if you're at the University of Toronto, there's a course for that. But at the very least, they serve a literary purpose. They force us to walk with our heroes through 12 years in the forest. We endure as they endure, sometimes frustrated, sometimes tickled, trying to divert ourselves until the exile's over. First stop, Yudhishthira reads from his itinerary, Rishi Augustus Ashram. Rishi Augustus? Mm, not quite, though some do consider the Roman emperor sage-like. The gent of whom we speak is a famous Indian figure who frankly has mostly nothing to do with our story. On the other hand, he's a poet of the Rig Veda, one of the seven iconic sages at the beginning of creation, and the stories about him are downright wacky. So worthwhile spending at least this afternoon with him. Let's start with his wedding. Augustia is a famous tapasvin or ascetic, and a super accomplished one at that, regularly a frontrunner in the Ascesis Olympics. But standing stationary among burning fires, what other kinds are there, I hear you, practicing asceticism has made it difficult to attract a mate. So at a mature age, he's still a swinging single, traveling the world, generating awesome tapas. One day he happens upon a cave, and I know you know what's coming up next. He sees a most curious sight. His poor benighted ancestors are dangling upside down, a single strand of cobwebby thread, all that separates them from the hard earth below. I know what you're thinking. Why do people in India compulsively enter caves? And where have I seen this before? And you're right, we have seen this film before, previously starring the ancient aesthetic Jarat Karu. 
see episode, I think, seven, who in a curious turn of narcissism would only marry a virgin of the same name. Gramps, Augustia recognizes in alarm, and great Gramps, what are you doing here? Why are you upside down, clutching at the string so tenaciously? The ancestors are under some strain. Well, Augustia, if you'd married, we wouldn't be here, would we? But you've chosen this ascetic lifestyle, which is going to kill off our line, so what do you expect? Soon we'll crash upon the earth and our name will dissipate forever, lost in the sands of time. Augustia is deeply remorseful. Hang tighter, right? I swear I'll marry. I'll have children. Cross my heart, I promise. But years go by and search the world over. Augustia can't find a suitable bride. To be fair, he's picky, but he has to be. A famous sage can't settle for just anyone. Anxious at the fate of his ancestors, whose grip on the afterlife daily grows weaker, he does the obvious thing. Combining the most captivating qualities of many creatures, the mischievous eyes of a playful doe, the majestic mane of a stallion, gait of a dancing peacock. Are you ready for this, everyone? He creates a baby girl of superb shape and form. Yes, you heard that right. Genetic engineering in the Mahabharata. Delighted with his creation, he bequeaths the adorable infant to the king of Vidharpa. Childless? No idea why. The king raises her as the radiant princess Lopamudra. Let's call her Lulu for short. The king adores his daughter, who grows up to be a self-possessed young woman of beauty beyond compare, endowed with every virtue. She's a gymnast and a concert pianist, a Rhodes scholar, a poet, Everywhere she goes, a legion of men follow. But so brilliant is she, they're too intimidated to ask for her hand. The king is in near despair about getting her married when Rishi Augustia returns, deeming the girl ripe for marriage. The king looks him over and does the same hasty calculation I know you're doing. At minimum, he must be two decades older than his bride-to-be. The king is in a quandary. The man's a very powerful rishi, so could easily grind him into mulch if he gets mad. On the other hand, to give him his most precious daughter, the jewel of her generation? He can't bear the thought. What do you think, hun? In agitation, he confers with his wife. He could pulverize us, but the thought of giving him a beloved girl. They debate the pros and cons. Finally, Lulu herself learns of the conundrum. I'll do it, Dad. You can't risk offending a man like that. He'll destroy you. Unwilling to see her parents suffer, the young Lopamudra marries Rishi Augustia. Brilliant! Augustia is eager to take his bride home. All these fine clothes and jewels? Forget about them. You won't need them where we're going. Lulu looks over her wedding trousseau of sumptuous silks and jewels curated and assembled over years and leaves it all behind to accompany her husband in the woods in tattered garments. 
Augustia's mighty pleased. The girl's everything he wanted in a wife, sweet and obedient to boot, he's super happy. Days pass and her fertile season arrives. Come, my love, Augustia calls his wife to bed. But to his great consternation, she demurs. My lord, a man takes a wife from desire and for children, but I too have a desire. I would lie with you on a bed as fine as that of my father's home. I want my husband to have the best of everything. I too would dress in jewels and clothes to my own taste. This would make me happy, my lord. Augustia's confounded. But Lulu, sweetheart, you know I don't have such things. You know I'm not a rich man like your father. Lulu smiles sweetly. What I know, my lord, is that you're capable of anything. You can achieve anything that you desire. But that would be a waste of my tapas. Ask me something that won't dissipate my tapas. But Lulu's mind is set. Time is passing, my lord. My fertile season will soon be over and I wouldn't miss this opportunity. Finding himself unexpectedly living a whole new story, Augustia goes in search of wealth. Under considerable pressure from his narrowing window of opportunity, Augustia heads swiftly to the wealthiest king he knows. Sir, I'm urgently in need of a large sum of cash. Give me whatever you can spare, please, without depriving others. Note to self, knock at Buckingham Palace tomorrow. The king is embarrassed and brings out his books. It's a bad time, I'm afraid. We've just passed this massive infrastructure bill. There's increasing strain in our healthcare system. The garbage collectors are on strike now, demanding higher pay. Any surplus from the last budget's gone to natural disasters. I wish I could help you. But he has an idea. Let's go to the next king. I know he's collecting handsomely from his colonies. We'll both go. I could use some cash too. But King Two's also under strain. The mutinies, man. The sabotage of supply lines, trade routes. It's become really challenging dealing with the natives. Wish I could help you. He furnishes his accounts to verify, and sure enough, they see he's barely squeaking even. Damn. They all head together to King Three, who for sure is known to have vast surpluses of gold in his vaults. Ah, that was the old days, my friends, he laments. Trips to the Riviera, winter skiing the Alps, but these Asuras have destroyed my life. He tells them the story of two Asura brothers who've been haunting his city for years. They're the bane of my existence. I can't tell you how much I've spent fortifying my city against them. Security is the top line on our budget for three years running and it's blazing expensive. Augustia's deeply disappointed. But the urgency of the situation gnaws upon him and they brainstorm. Finally, I know, offers King Three, why not kill two birds with one stone? I mean, if you favour hunting metaphors. He shares his plan. The Asuras bucking my kingdom are the brothers Ilval and Vatapi. My people call them Ivy. They've evolved this grisly business plan, but it's really working for them. He gives them the lowdown on Ivy. I's got this gift that he can bring creatures back to life. 
I know, it sounds nuts. I don't know how he does it, but he's turned it into a mega money-making proposition. He invites super-rich kings to dinner and feeds them his brother V, cooked up like a delicious lamb curry. When the king has eaten, he recalls his brother to life. Of course, the only way Vatapi can return to life is to rip his way out of the king's stomach. In so doing, he kills the king, is rejuvenated himself, and appropriates the king's treasury. Crazy, right? Who's even heard of such a thing? But that's their gig, and they're making a killing out of it. As it turns out, we have heard of such a thing. Remember the story of Kachan Devyani in episode... Mm, where Devyani's father holds the secret to restoring life? Agastya gets thinking, this is brilliant. Let's do it tonight itself. I have a plan. The Asura brothers are delighted to have three kings and a hermit come to visit. They assume their roles. V allows himself to be cooked as a delectable red wine-braised roasted rack of lamb, served to the guests with a quartet of fresh spring vegetables tossed with lemon and butter and almond. I watches in glee as dinner is served to his guests. But to his great astonishment, Rishi Agastya jumps in first with a huge appetite and gobbles all the food in just a few quick bites. He polishes off every last morsel of Brother V and not merely that, washes him down with a glass of Bordeaux red. Oh, pardon me, he excuses himself as he burps. Delicious meal, my compliments to the chef. Delighted with your hospitality. Are there seconds? Ilvil realises he's doomed. Weakly, he calls for his brother V, pleading with him to rise from the dead. But nobody had calculated on Augustia's lightning-fast metabolism. V, alas, is consumed and digested and quite beyond resurrection. Who are you and what do you want? I is now in anguish at his brother's demise. Augustia gets down to business. We need riches, if you can spare them without depriving others. Ilvil peruses the list. A hundred crates of a hundred gold bricks for each of us, four golden chariots, four dissolved Dakan jets, sixteen Rolls Royces, chests of diamonds, sapphires, emeralds, pearls, four Bonetti yachts, and one crimson Patek Philippe diamond-studded watch. Ilvil sighs and hands the list to his treasurer. Loaded with booty, Augustia hastens to his beloved. Just in time. She conceives right away, and seven years later, because it's the Mahabharata and why should any birth be normal, she gives birth to a bouncing baby boy. Hallelujah! Augustia's ancestors cry in relief, by now their fingertips worn to bleeding from clinging onto the string. Rishi Agastya's gustatory adventures are famous, Rishi Lomish continues with his tour. Consuming V was nothing. Did I tell you about the time he drank the ocean? The Pandavas look incredulous. It was in ancient times when the chief of the god Indra was fighting his great nemesis, the Asura Vritra. 
and he launches into that story. In our next episode, we'll learn of one of the defining events of the Rig Veda, the battle between Indra and the great serpent, or is he a dragon, or maybe he's a monster? The Asura Vritra. Vritra is a colossus who's holding the world's waters captive in a mountain. Yes, of course, that's a thing. For life to be, the waters must be released, but the gods are having a real problem sorting it out. How that goes, let's find out next time if you join me for another episode of the Mahabharata.